Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. Two weeks ago, this podcast had the privilege of taking a virtual visit to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia for an eye-opening assessment of women's rights in what the Global Gender Gap Report cites as among the worst nations in the world when it comes to gender equity. On today's episode, we're going to scroll all the way to the top of that gender gap report list, to the number one country in the world when it comes to gender equity, to Iceland, a nation which many view as the gold standard for women's rights in the world. To help facilitate this exploration of Icelandic culture, we're joined by world traveler Rachel Greenlee, as well as a number of Icelandic locals who generously sat down with Rachel to discuss patriarchy overseas. They'll talk about lessons that American and Icelandic feminism can learn from one another and about the red stocking movement and the history of how Iceland has become a world leader in gender equality. Before we dig in, though, I'd like to formally introduce our guest. Rachel Greenlee's pronouns are she and her, and she has a master's degree in international development and is passionate about women's empowerment. She travels, lives, and works around the world with her husband and children. I'm so excited that she chose to share her knowledge with us today. Welcome, Rachel Greenlee. My name is Rachel Greenlee, and I currently live in Reykjavik, Iceland. I am so happy to be a part of this project. I have loved this podcast and have listened to every single episode. I think we can all agree that Amy has approached this project with such balance, compassion, humility, and frankly, intellectual stamina. When I think about the amount of texts she has covered in a year's time with quality analysis. I am in awe. So thank you so much, Amy, for sharing this journey with us. I have learned so much. And I think it has really set a good foundation for all of us to understand the history and the manifestations of patriarchy in our lives so that we can move forward and know how to dismantle the parts of our inherited system that just aren't working anymore so that we can move towards egalitarianism and a society where all can thrive. I particularly love the episode regarding Anne-Marie Slaughter's book, Unfinished Business. If you haven't listened to that episode, I suggest you go back and listen to it because I mention her article and book here. So 10 years ago, I was single, 27, and living in Washington, D.C. when Anne-Marie Slaughter's Why Women Still Can't Have It All came out. As a quick recap, Slaughter discusses her decision to leave her dream position at the State Department under Secretary Clinton as a political appointee so that she can return to Princeton and her professorship to be more present for her teenage children who were struggling and needed more parental attention. She argued that despite many advances in the women's movement, There are still many women who can't have a career and a family in a truly balanced way. And then soon after, Sheryl Sandberg, the COO of Facebook, came out with the well-known book, Lean In. And this encouraged women to retake up the feminist cause, to shatter the glass ceiling by leaning into their leadership track jobs, climbing the corporate ladder so that they could be in decision-making positions to make real change happen. Both arguments resonated with me and clearly stated the important needs for breaking down patriarchy. On one hand, I could see the need for female representation and leadership positions to create space for structural change. On the other hand, I also saw the need for quality care of the elderly, those with special needs, and children. And that kind of quality care was not and is not available in a way that is affordable or accessible in the United States. So as we well know, it is often the women who have to leave the workforce and provide that care for their family, which in many cases can be financially devastating to families. In the years that have passed, I've come to see that these two needs need to be filled simultaneously. We can't wait for women to rise to the top of government and private sector companies to make the changes that we need. We need to enable caregivers to have the resources to develop their professional skills and stay employed while also ensuring 
that those who need care in their lives are provided for with quality care. Both Slaughter and Sandberg agree that the next phase of the women's movement needs to be a man's movement, with components of elevating the reputation and value of caregiving, which patriarchy dramatically undervalues. While traditional ideas of what women's roles are and what they are capable of have changed rapidly, they have not changed as rapidly for men. While our boys' ideas of masculinity are still slowly changing, their understanding of their role as the sole breadwinner of their family has not. If we can help encourage everyone to pursue a career while prioritizing the care of family, we could be well on our way to breaking down patriarchy and replacing it with true egalitarianism. When I met my husband, I was 28 and in grad school studying international development at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. He is a foreign service officer or a diplomat, and that meant that we were going to live around the world together. I was very excited and eager to start this adventure together, and I naively thought that I could easily build a career in my field because it was international and take it along with me as we moved around every two to three years. Since then, two wonderful children have joined our family. And while I was able to find work with a USAID contract while we lived in Tunisia for a year and a half, the career I had envisioned was not so clear cut. Now through some turbulence, but much good fortune, we have landed in Reykjavik for the next three years. Not only has this been the best possible place to wait out the world pandemic, but it has also become the place where I've been transported to the world that I had hoped for 10 years earlier when reading Sandberg and Slaughter's words. In my small community in the suburbs of Reykjavik, I can see how a simultaneous change in culture and government policy has brought balance to work and family life. For 12 years running, Iceland has been ranked number one the Gender Gap Report. This report is annually released by the World Economic Forum, and it assesses a country's level of egalitarianism based on comparing women to men with metrics such as economic participation, education attainment, political empowerment, and health and survival. With its long reign as the leading country in egalitarianism, Iceland has been able to push the envelope on breaking socially constructed gender norms and has altered the cultural psyche of what it is to be a fully participating member of society. The Icelandic government offers an extensive list of family-friendly policies that have contributed to breaking down patriarchy. I can't go over all of them because they are many, but some of them that I find prevalent to our conversation and some that might be more attainable for the United States are parental leave for both the men and the women. Recently changed from nine months to 12 months of parental leave divided between the spouses. So six months for the woman and six months for the man. This means that if a family with two parents wants a full year of paternity leave, each parent has to take their six months. That means the mother will have six months as the lead parent at home and the father will have six months as the lead parent at home. I think that in and of itself has the potential to make dramatic changes in how the world and men understand the importance of early childhood care and all that goes into it. Another government policy that is huge is there are child care and education subsidies, making it affordable for parents to put their children into preschool. There are also generous leave policies. There are 10 sick days for adults, but an additional 12 days to care for sick children under the age of 13 and a minimum of 24 days of vacation. There also was an equal pay law passed in 2018 and the government offers guaranteed child support from the government after a divorce, if the ex-spouse cannot pay support. And last but not least, some of you may have seen in the news recently that the government has partially implemented a 36-hour work week. I have a friend that I've gotten to know through preschool. Our children are in the same preschool together. And she works for the government as a lawyer. And she said that 
The new 36-hour work week has been amazing in helping her have more quality time with her children. She's able to be there in the morning, help them get off to school without any rush or stress, and then she's also able to be there when they come home. So I know that these all sound lovely, and I'm sure everybody would want to have such wonderful policies. And to answer the question that I'm sure many of you are asking, how is this all paid for? And to be honest, it it does come with a high price tag. So Iceland pays for all of their family-friendly benefits, which also includes socialized medicine. They pay for it with a 46% personal income tax. So that's nearly half of their personal income is being taxed. 20% corporate tax, 20% capital gains tax, a 24% sales or value-added tax, and there is no military to speak of, so military spending is almost zero, and the national deficit is only at 16 million U.S. dollars. So a lot of these taxes can go straight to this substantial safety net. All of this makes Reykjavik one of the more expensive capital cities to live in. I can tell you it is painful (laughs) to take three sweaters to the dry cleaner and have a bill of $90. And it's also hard. I've compared prices on Amazon with a toy in the toy store will cost here will cost $45 and it will cost $20 on Amazon. So you do feel that price. I know that we come from a position of privilege, but I will say that when I do feel that pain of paying that extra high price, I think about the investment that is being made in my children and the quality school that they have. And I am willing to pay from my position when I need to. And I understand that that might not be the case for a lot of Icelanders who might not have the same privileges as us. So I wanted to move on and kind of look at how Iceland got to where it is now. And now I want to interview Gudrun Augustdottir. She is a very impressive woman who I have loved to get to know. She was a leader in the red stocking movement of the 1970s and later pursued a political career. She was the president of the city council of Reykjavik and later worked with a shelter for victims of domestic violence. So without much further ado, here is my interview with her. Okay, so this is Gudrun Augustotir. Did I pronounce that correctly? (laughs) So Gudrun and I have gotten to know each other from a book group that I was fortunate to join when I arrived here in Iceland. And it has been lovely getting to know all of the women in this group. They have a diverse understanding of Iceland. And when I mentioned to Gudrun, I think my first book group (laughs) experience that I was currently doing a deep dive into American feminism, she brought out a book of Icelandic feminism and and talked it. And she showed me the chapter on what was called the Red Stocking Movement and how it influenced the women's movement in Iceland. And I've since then kind of been very interested in it and it an important part of Iceland's history and story to help us understand how Iceland is where it is at the top of the gender gap report. So Gudrun, I wanted to first start off with some of the basics of the red stocking movement. So maybe you could start with explaining what happened on October 25th, 1975. Well, then we had been working together. We, we for five years, and we sort of thought we have to do something very big mm-hmm. in order to change the life of women in Iceland for the better. And changing the life for women in Iceland for the better means better life for everyone. That mm-hmm. is what we thought. And we had been focusing on so many things, abortion rights, uh, uh, women's equality in the workforce, which was far from okay, and in order to allow women to have equality in the workplace and and education, then you needed care for your children. They can't be left alone. 
So that these and other things were our main subjects. Then somebody came up with the idea, why don't we just go on a strike? Take a day, half a day or a day on a strike. And somebody mentioned that the United Nations uh, had uh, a women's day and the women's year that would start on the 24th of October, 1975. And we all said, yes, that's a really good idea. So we started in January 1975 and on a big conference with the women that were in the trade unions for the lowest paid women. Uh, together with the, we, we arranged it, the Red Stockings. Then I was chosen because I was in one of the trade unions chosen mm-hmm. at the Red Stocking to come forward with this idea. And the, the women said, yes, we will be with you. And at the end of this conference that took a whole day, they all agreed upon working with us in promoting this idea to do the strike. And there was a committee that worked on it until the day mm-hmm. and um, very efficient women. And in June, we had a big conference with all women in all, you know, all political parties and uh, from all the trade unions and whatever. And uh, when we were sort of coming to the close of this meeting, we were doing all kinds of things. Then this idea of going on a strike came up for vote. And then the conservative women, they said, we don't like this word strike. So, well, that was a clash, you know. Mm -hmm. And then one elderly woman, wise woman, said, why don't we just call it a day off? And we went on with it. And it ended up with the 90% of women in Iceland taking part all over the country. And uh, And that's uh, amazing. 90% of the women in the entire country walked out. They walked out of their jobs, of their homes, leaving men to take care of the children and to fend for themselves in the workplace. 90% were out protesting. Yeah. We were protesting because when we were asking for, you know, equal wages and things like that, the man would say, your work is not important. You know, mm-hmm. you're just uh, working because you, you want to have a better life, you know, to buy clothes and travel and things like that. But it's not as important as the work of the men. Everything, of course, broke down in Iceland. when yes, the Of course. Everything. So... After that, nobody ever tried to say that the women didn't matter in the workforce. So that was a great success. And it gave us power to go on, you know. And then we became world famous. (laughs) And I think this, you know, made it less difficult for us to vote for Vildis, the first president, democratically elected in the world in 1980. That was the first female president. Female president, yeah. Mm-hmm. So and that was very important for women in Iceland. And we mm-hmm. all love her and are very proud of her. We have a woman prime minister and mm-hmm. we have a woman minister of health. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And and so some of the original demands from my research that I saw of the red stocking movement were to help women succeed in the workforce and to gain more equality. And part of that was crucially was childcare. So was it, that was part of the initial demands of the Red Stocking Movement, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. We said that there should be preschools and uh, free of charge for all children. And uh, mm-hmm. We had to wait for a long time for that to happen, but it was important that uh, there was passed a law in 1990 that this would be the first, I think, 89 or 90, it was would be the first preschool, should be called school, part of the educational system, even though the child was only one or two years old. But what we did back in the, you know, red stocking days we started our own kindergartens. So mm. we would just uh, hire somebody. We had to pay quite a lot ourselves. And, and we worked in the kindergarten ourselves until several red stockings 
took over the Reykjavik City Council, 1994. Okay. And the mayor was a former Red Stocking, Ingibjörg Solrum Gisladóttir. And I was the president of the city council. And one was, uh, you know, taking care of very important things also. So three red stockings, and that's when it changed dramatically in Reykjavik, which is, of course, the biggest capital. Which goes to prove the fact that female representation is how structural change can really take place and how it has happened in Iceland. Yeah, it helps that the women, that they are Mm -hmm. open-minded and then they can change the world. Mm -hmm. And so all of these changes in government policy, and I know in the recent election, it was almost parity in parliament. Not quite, but almost. I mean, you're still very close to having equal representation in parliament. And so how do you feel... And how have you seen in your lifetime the change of how this has affected women's roles in society and even men's roles in society? Dramatically, Iceland is so different from when I was a young mother, you know, starting Mm. my first steps in the feminist movement. There was one woman in parliament in 1970. And two or three in the in city council in Reykjavik, and very few women went to uh, university. And now there are more women going through taking higher education than men, and the kindergarten children, and the right to maternity leave. Mm-hmm. Now we call it it's a maternity and paternity leave because. Mm-hmm. And that is very recent, from nine months to 12 months leave for both men and women. And men have to take their part of this paternity leave. And that means that they connect to their children in a different way. And we've seen that. that It's so good for the man to be (laughs) able to get so close to the children. One thing that I'm very pleased with that is also something recent that now uh, people can uh, decide their own gender you know that is so important they don't have to be either man or woman they can change what they want to be that is their decision to make that was passed only one year ago or something that law well thank you so one final question is with all of these changes and, and I'm glad that you brought up that there are still things and we still have progress that we need to make. But would you say that I'm sure that you have had to deal with a lot of critics and a lot of people questioning, you know, oh, if you give women this right, society will fall apart because no one will take care of the children. Or how do you feel that the strides that you have witnessed in the history of Iceland in your lifetime have they improved not only the women's quality of life, but also everyone's? Yes. It, obviously, you know, it's children have a much better life. The school system is so much better than it was. And men, some of them don't know it yet, but they all have support from women. It's, uh, well, it's famous that women give quite a lot of love to their surroundings so do men but they Mm -hmm. have to learn i think that as i said before fathers and children have the possibility for much closer relation and to be able to educate yourself as you wish and the health system and health care in in iceland and so it's a much much better world for everyone. And we have always said better, a better world for women is a better world for everyone. Exactly. You truly are a world leader. And we're so grateful that you are showing us an example of what is possible and that we're deeply grateful for all of you in who really pushed hard in the Red Stocking movement to, to give the world an example to look at. So thank you. Thank you. So now that we have looked at the history of Iceland and how the country has gotten to be where it is today, I wanted to give a concrete example of what it looks like on the ground. 
Paulina is a kindergarten teacher, and her partner Birgir is in sales, distribution, and merchandising for the biggest bread company in Iceland. They have a three-year-old daughter and just welcomed their new son in July. With the arrival of the newest member of their family, both Paulina and Birgir were able to, between the two of them, take up to 12 months of paternity leave. Paulina is currently pursuing a teaching certification at the university and tells me that she wouldn't be able to do it all without the support of her partner at home. They work equally at home and feel that they have a true partnership in dividing household chores. Once their parental leave is up, both parents will have to return to work. And when their son is 12 months of age, he can go to the La Escola, which serves as a hybrid daycare and kindergarten for children 12 months to six years of age. Paulina and Birkir's children will be able to attend the school from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m., five days a week. They'll get two healthy meals and a snack will be provided, as will excellent care. Each classroom has around 20 children with one lead teacher and up to four aides. That is a ratio of five children per one adult, which is beautiful. The lead teachers are highly educated with a master's degree in early childhood development. They implement play-based learning that is so characteristic of Nordic and Scandinavian countries, both indoors and out, no matter the weather. Um, this quality of care would be of extreme cost to any family in the United States. I know I have recently read that in Washington, D.C., the cost of childcare is around $2,500 a month. However, in Iceland, the government subsidizes early childhood care and education. So Paulina and Birkir will at most pay $500 a month for both of their children to attend the La Escola. Parents can have great peace as they send their children to a place where their health, education, and well-being will be safeguarded. To get more insight, I have interviewed both Paulina and Birkir about their experiences. And as you listen to them talk about their experiences, I think you can see how the changes in Iceland have really taken huge steps in breaking down patriarchy, gender norms within the home, how we raise children, how childcare is dealt with in the patriarchal way is much different than in Iceland than in the United States, for example. Please give a listen and enjoy their interviews. Say hello, Paulina. Hi. Thank you for joining us on this podcast. Yeah. I know Paulina through our children are at the same preschool and our daughters have become the best of friends. Oh, yes. <laughs> we have spent lots of time together getting to know each other. And I've been able to see firsthand how wonderful the Icelandic system is for families. And so Paulina, I have really appreciated that you guys have led us into your lives and that we've been able to really see how Icelandic culture is at its best. So I just wanted to go ahead and ask you about some of your experiences of being a woman here in Iceland. Yeah. So how would you say that your life as a woman is different than your grandmother's? Wow, my grandmother is born in what 1935. She didn't have any opportunity to to educate herself because she was a staying home mom and I think that's the reason why she never worked or went to school because mm -hmm. she was staying home mom. Wait, how many um, children did she have? Six. Yeah, and with each child, she only had three months paid maternity leave. But for me, I am getting my education. I have so many opportunities to make a name for myself and just do whatever I want even though I have two children and I get to stay home with my, my children for, you know, 10 months now. So it's just, yeah. Would you say the, the gender roles that mm -hmm. your grandmother was kind of more put into more rigidly, do you feel like you're as bound to those as nowadays as she was back then? Yes, she did everything in her home. My grandfather always worked outside and I don't think he was a big part of the upbringing. 
And, and I, grandfather was not as involved in the child. No. Caring as much no. as husband is today. No, no, no. We, we are so equal, me and my husband. It's just divided like 50-50. Everything in the home and then the children's lives. And I couldn't do it if I didn't have him. Yeah. Because it's so hard. Yes. <laughs> As you know. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> we both have wonderful husbands that are very yeah. heavily involved with our children's lives and, and the, the care of them. Yeah. Yeah. My next question is, how has the maternity and paternity policies in Iceland affected your family? Well, we get to spend more time together at home, me at first with the little one and, and he after a few months, but the payments, they could be higher. It is 80% of my salary uh, divided to, you know, every month, months, so you, like I told you. Every month you're getting paid your salary, but at 80%, not the full yeah. wage. Yeah. And, you know, especially when you work in at a place where the salary isn't very high, like I, like mm -hmm. me, and you feel the difference in 80% and the 100%, of course. But the child gets to grow in a safe and secure environment, and, and I get to enjoy it, and we get to know each other, and I don't have to send him away at three months. So um, and from what I understand, Birkir has not yet taken time off. He has not yet started his paternity leave. No, he took a summer vacation the first month that Anton was born. And so that was just part of his annual leave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Up. Yeah, it just happened that he was born in July and, you know, Icelanders take their summer vacation June, July or August. So in May, he will stay home to October and I go to work. Okay. And so how was that? So, yeah. Good home for that first month. How was that? And how did it affect your family? It was amazing. Our older daughter, uh, she was home in a summer vacation from, from school. So if Birkir had been working, it had been really hard mm -hmm. to have both the children at home because you know, he was having stomach issues and breastfeeding and work. Yeah, yeah, my baby. Yeah. yeah. So, and she had, you know, she's three and a half years old and she always has to have something to do and someone to play with. So he was always taking her outside or stayed home with the baby and I went outside with her or we just had to split it, split it up like that. So it was probably pretty crucial to have yeah. her. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but when Rosa was born, he was also home for a month. And it was just amazing. We both had the opportunity to get to know the baby and, mm. and the baby got to know her mom and her dad, not mm. just the mom. So yeah. yeah, and that bonding is so important. That bonding is important. And with the hormones and, and the birth and everything, you are just sensitive. Mm -hmm. So it's so good to have the support of your husband or mate mm -hmm. or whatever so now about your son and just yeah. forward and how Iceland has kind of shifted how gender yeah. roles are in society so I'm curious what do you envision for your son's life and what do you hope for him in his future and how is that going to affect your parenting well now it's so amazing to see that that the young children today or you know preteens or teenagers they have such an amazing view on just life and people because they are so aware that you can just be what you want to be and it doesn't matter if you're if you're black or if you're a woman or a man or a or gay or it, it just doesn't matter you just get mm -hmm. to be and that's amazing and and it wasn't like that so we will raise him with the gender equality in mind and just that the people are different and it it is okay mm -hmm. and with that he can have the strength and 
self-esteem to be whatever he wants to be. That's lovely. Yeah. That's in a situation where you are accepted for who you are. That's yeah. Yeah. And it opened society. It's, I just can't imagine how it was for a few, a few years back. It has, and it's changed very rapidly. Yeah. So thank you for that. And thank you so much for taking time out of your day to share your insights and experience. We all have so much to learn from Iceland and we are grateful for you. Thank you. Hello, Birgir. Thank you for being here. Hello. So everybody, this is Birgir. He is Paulina's husband, who we just talked to. And just like Paulina, we have really enjoyed getting to know Birker and Paulina and their family. Birker has cooked for us many times. He makes wonderful pizza and amazing hamburgers. And he, he's just fun to be around. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation with you, Birker. So I just wanted to kind of start and ask you about kind of the changes that you may have seen in your lifetime and, and through your family. How has the role of men changed in the home over the last couple of generations? I mean, I can only talk about it from my perspective. I just remember my father just working and and basically my mom also being working, but also taking care of the household. They, I mean, they had different. My dad took care of the cars and stuff like that but yeah indoors and and meals and stuff like that my mom took care of but nowadays were they more pigeonholed into what would be traditional yeah yeah traditional rules. would you say like your grandfather or your father were they very much involved with child rearing no no i i, I wouldn't say so and then how, how does it look now for you? Now it's basically for me and Paulina, it's 50-50, basically everything. I mean, we both work, we both take care of the children and have similar focuses about upbringing. And yeah, we we both parent our children. Yeah, it, it's not not like, I'm doing more than her or she's doing more than me yeah it's basically equal I I mean when we like for example clean the house we we both have our our things that we do we have a yeah system about it but I mean we do equally as much that's wonderful and would you how would you say that system has helped helps your family or benefits your family it definitely benefits the children to have both parents parenting them mm-hmm. uh, and and it shouldn't be it shouldn't be just uh, one of the parents taking care of everything i mean marriage isn't a one way deal yeah it's both persons chipping in i mean sometimes she she does more than me and sometimes I do more than her I mean it depends on the week yeah even even just on the day I mean how you're feeling you're not always up to doing everything you you're supposed to do but Mm -hmm. do you feel like you benefit from this more open way of approaching gender roles within the home yeah, definitely. I feel more connected to my children than than I felt as a child to my father. Mm-hmm. So when a daughter is having trouble with something, or, or she she comes to me equally as much as she she goes to her, her mother. So, I mean, it's much more satisfying to be a part of your children's lives than not being because there's there is so much joy in rearing children but you do have to be present to be able to experience that the joyful part yeah. so that's wonderful that you 
live in a time when you get to partake in that. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm I'm very grateful to to have this opportunity to take this much a part of the upbringing of my children. I think it sounds like a situation where everybody wins. You win, your wife wins, your children win. If everybody wins, then society wins. Exactly. And putting out better people to be better prepared for life. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree more. So in Iceland, they give men six months of paternity leave when a new child is born. Are you going to be taking your paternity leave? And how do you envision that going? I will be taking five months next year from the start of May till the end of September. But that means I will not be taking my summer vacation days during that time. Mm. So in extra, I will have 24 working days off from, yeah, extra to the five months. Wow. So, and, and during that time, you will be the lead parent? Yeah. Yeah, I also, I mean, with our three-year-old, I took, Iceland hadn't, we only had about nine months then in maternity leave. They I recently took, changed it yeah. from nine months to 12 months. I took three months then, and it was, yeah, it was great. I mean, it's basically you're taking care of your child and the household. I mean, who who doesn't know how to vacuum? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and you get yeah. that extra time to bond with your. I think it's yeah. that early time, the opportunity to bond with the baby, starts your relationship off the best way possible. Yeah, that's so wonderful. So in the United States, I have heard anecdotally that men can be sometimes offered paternity leave, but if they actually take it, they won't be in good standing in their company. Is that the case here? Or do is it pretty accepted that all men, if they have a new baby in their family, will take their paternity leave? It's accepted. It's no problems taking your paternity leave. That's wonderful. Usually, yeah, usually not. But I think the law is if you're going to take everything that you have, they they can't deny you. Mm. So, so you're guaranteed um, to have your job back when you return, yeah. and yeah. they're not allowed to discriminate against you for mm. having taken the leave. Yeah. That you won't be passed up for a promotion or anything like that. Okay. Yeah. I think that's all I have for you, Birkir. So thank you so much for taking the time to share your experience with us. Thanks, Rachel. One of the true signs that patriarchy is being broken down in Iceland is not only are the families benefiting from structural change, but so are the teachers of young children. From what I have seen, teachers at the Leiskola are respected and valued members of the community. Per my research, lead Leiskola teachers can earn between 48000 and 59000 with a chance at getting an annual bonus. In comparison, the average wage for childcare workers in the United States is around 25000 which is less after taxes. Well, if you do take into account that with a 46% income tax rate, the wages of Icelandic teachers are a bit closer to teachers in the United States. The teachers of Iceland still have access to universal health care, substantial leave, and other benefits that hold great value and increase their standard of living to be better than that of their counterparts in the United States. I have enjoyed getting to know the lead teacher of my five-year-old son's class, Unar. She is wonderful, and my son absolutely adores her. You can tell that she loves her job and that she is very effective at it. She has been teaching at the school for 15 years, and it's not uncommon for people to stay at their schools for this long. 
turnover is not very high, which I'm sure it is a bit higher in the United States. And Unar talks about how she still comes across many of the students that have passed through her classroom while she's out and about. And this reinforces the community that is really strong in each little neighborhood. When asked about her role in society, Unar feels that she has contributed a great deal in raising the next generation of Icelanders and that her role in society is significant. And I agree. I'm so grateful to her and all at the Leiskola that my children attend. They really have created such a warm and welcoming place for my children to go. My poor kids showed up not knowing a lick of Icelandic. Here it is mandated that all preschools be taught in Icelandic in order to protect the la- and maintain the language. But within six months, my children were almost fluent and had truly bonded with their teachers and classmates. We just came back from a three-week vacation in the United States, and they could not wait to get back to school to see their teachers and their friends. And as a mother, I can't express how happy I am to see that my children are thriving in this lovely school system. Now, I have gushed a lot about Iceland, and you can tell that I'm a bit biased on how well I think things work here. However, I do want to just highlight some of the things that Icelanders have mentioned to me that they still feel like they need to work on. First, Paulina, who was interviewed earlier and is also a school teacher, says that she feels that other working parents only view preschool as a daycare and that they do not fully recognize or value the quality of education their children are getting. While they are playing, it's very intentional play-based learning. Also, because it is a homogenous population that is smaller, inclusion is not the strong point, and there are things that can be done to be more inclusive to foreigners who arrive. Personally, my experience has been wonderful, but I have heard anecdotally that there are other things that, that could be improved. And ultimately, while Iceland is still at the top of the gender gap report, there still is a gender gap that needs to be closed. Equal pay is still not quite there and other areas could be improved. Finally, the government is very open about the fact that despite the high representation of women in the government and high economic participation in the workforce, gender-based violence is still very prevalent. And that is something that everybody is aware of and that the government is continually seeking solutions to. So in conclusion, like Cheryl Sandberg and Anne-Marie Slaughter, I see the dire need for both female representation and the need to elevate the importance of care in order to break down patriarchy. I have deeply appreciated this opportunity to learn from Iceland and how both can be accomplished. It is a wonderful place, and because of its small homogenous population and unique history, it has proved to be a perfect laboratory for what communities can look like if they implement egalitarian policies and support it with cultural evolution for gender roles. They have already completed a large part of the pictures Slaughter and Sandberg paint in their books for a better America. And I know that the United States is dramatically different than Iceland. With a comparatively enormous population and immense diversity ethnically, economically, and politically, it's most likely that we won't be able to replicate the Icelandic system. But I think it has been so educational to see how society can look if it does implement policies that truly prioritize families and children. I think in general, we can all acknowledge that parts of our capitalist culture are backwards. I don't think I know anyone who doesn't agree that teachers are not valued or paid enough. However, I do think you can still find many who do not see the importance of parental leave for both parents or the importance of increasing the value of care. To me, it's a no-brainer. Investing in mothers, children, and care workers not only improves the well-being of society, but it also creates more opportunities for our economy to grow and thrive. I have no data to back this up, but I can only imagine how some of these changes could heal some of the biggest wounds that our nation has. If children and care of them was held more valuable and to higher standards, maybe we would see less mass shootings in stronger communities 
and find ways to bridge the gaps of polarization. I can only hope that future generations will have the opportunity to live a more balanced and whole lives. And on that note, I would like to thank you all for the opportunity to be a part of this project and to share my story. We're so grateful to Rachel Greenlee and to her interviewees for sharing their insights and offering us all a look into Iceland's impressive culture of equity and respect. People all over the world marvel at the gender parity that Iceland has managed to achieve, but I think it's so critical that we remember also that all of these rights and recognitions weren't freely offered to women. Reaching this level of equity required direct action, marches, manifestos, and strikes from feminists and their allies, and even then it took decades to achieve. Institutional change does not happen overnight, and it doesn't happen through any one person alone, but together by pooling our knowledge and our resources and our passion. Iceland shows us that these changes are indeed possible in the rest of the world. Before I go, I'd like to thank Sam Rose Preminger for our production, Brianna Jovan for our editing, and Lindsay Olibes for our social media. And thanks as well to all of you listening for joining us. Please make sure to tune in again next week for a fascinating conversation with a woman named Carrie who self-identifies as a modern-day witch. She will discuss black cats and broomsticks, goddess archetypes, and feminine divinity. And she will ask us to consider just how many witches there might be living among us but they might not be as frightening as you think. All of this next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. 